Listening to Cannabis Health Radio. Here are your hosts, Ian Jessup and Corey Yelland. Welcome to another episode of Cannabis Health Radio. I'm Ian Jessup. And I'm Corey Yelland. Our guest today got involved in the cannabis industry because she was on 26 different pharmaceuticals for her pain and was looking for a solution that would help get her off those drugs. She is the founder of Ant Zeldas, which describes itself as a pioneering, data-driven developer of cannabis-based plant medicines. Joining us from California is Mara Gordon, who specializes in the development of cannabis extract protocols for seriously ill patients in California. Mara, it's very good of you to do this. Thanks very much. My pleasure. Happy for, to be here. Mara, you were on 26 different pharmaceuticals. Tell us the story behind you being on so many medications. Well, unfortunately, it wasn't just pain, but um, the vast majority of the pharmaceuticals that I took, each one was to counteract the side effects of another one. I had had um, a back injury. I was an athlete, and I'd been injured, and I required uh, back surgery, and they they nicked my meningi in in surgery and didn't, didn't fix it. And long story short, I ended up with bacterial spinal meningitis. Um, I spent months and months in the hospital. I was on intravenous. You know, I had a catheter in my chest for better part of a year on um, very high dose uh, vancomycin and other drugs trying to keep me alive and to get rid of the hospital acquired staph infection. And when I was uh, let go finally out after, off of treatment, they were like, well, Here's that first they had me on morphine uh, at home and they said, this is going to pretty well be your life from now on. And I said, no, it's not. And I, you know, I started self-medicating with things like massive doses of aspirin. Well, it's great against pain, but it's not very good for the body. So that didn't work. And I tried all these other things and I was coping with ridiculous amounts of uh, naproxen and other other over-the-counter type uh, drugs. And then in 2003, I had pretty well gotten back to, you know, being able to be fairly functional. I kept losing the, my uh, ability to, to stand and I ended up in a wheelchair and, you know, on at that point, they sent me home from the hospital on a fentanyl patch. Uh, then it just was, became, you know, adding and adding and adding as a result of the, uh, treatment for the meningitis, I had stage three kidney disease because it destroyed my kidneys. It kept me alive. The medication is very similar to what cancer patients experience with chemotherapies. You know, it kills the cancer cells, but it does all this other damage to the body. And it was a very similar situation. So I, I was on all these, uh, you know, myriad of treatments for this one and that one. And my husband one day actually created a chart doing a line drawing back and forth matching which ones I was taking for the same things that they supposedly were treating. Like one of the medications for my asthma was, uh, if you look at the side effects, it says may cause shortness of breath, you know, things like that. I mean, Mm -hmm. just crazy, crazy counter interactions. So when I was going to become a grandmother, I made the decision that it was time to get my life back. 
and start becoming conscious. So I started the very, very painful process of weaning off of, you know, besides the fentanyl patch, which was just a horrific drug to get off of, uh, I was also on methadone. Uh, for breakthrough pain, and it was ter- equally terrible. So I was able to get off all but three, and thanks to cannabis, I have restored 100% kidney function. I have all of my pain under control with the cannabinoids, and I only take medications now for the damage done to my thyroid by the treatment and for, you know, basically for allergies. It's a huge success what cannabis has done. Mara, when did you discover that cannabis may be beneficial to you? Interestingly, I had my mother um, who had a uh, lung cancer, who died from lung cancer, when she was at towards the end, um, somebody had suggested that we, you know, have her smoke a joint to deal with the side effects of the uh, chemotherapy treatments and radiation. And we did, and it, um, it, I did not have very good results with her. Of course, I didn't know anything about it. It was like you got whatever you got. So when I started getting, when I got off all of these medications and then my husband needed surgery on his back and he's been sober now for 28 years and was not willing to go on opioids because of the risk to his sobriety, um, we started researching and cannabis is what came up and it was like, okay, let's do a controlled trial. Let's see how it works. And I started, you know, experimenting with it. You know, first thing, of course, because of how I am, I went and got a medical card to be able to do it. And I was so frustrated by what products and information were out there that uh, I put my engineer hat back on and said, well, I got to figure this out for myself. And I'd say that was uh, late 2010. When you first started on cannabis, what did you take? What did you ingest? The first thing I did was I went to a a dispensary that's actually a very well-renowned. Now their products are very different. And I the the bud tender at the time, uh, he said, oh, you should try this. And he handed me a Rice Krispie treat. And it was wrapped in cellophane or, or plastic wrap, and it had a piece of masking tape on it, which is, you know, impressive. And it said five to 20 doses. And then he gave me a brownie, and then he gave me a bag of caramel corn. Uh, and those were the things he wanted me to try, or actually both of us, myself and my husband, to try. Um, I started keeping track of what we took, how much we took, the timing, the effects. I mean, even from the very first dose, I weighed every piece. And can tell you that the inconsistency uh, was unbelievable. One time I would take it and I would be up all night, you know, with way, way overactive mind. Another time I would take the same thing and it would be like if on a brownie where you have to cut it in pieces and I would be so lethargic the next day that I couldn't even function Uh, or it would do nothing or I'd have nightmares. I mean, it was all over the place. Mary, if I walk into a cannabis dispensary today, anywhere in the world, to buy an edible, which is what you're referring to, Uh do I know how much cannabis is in that edible? The answer is no. Um, You don't know because there is not any requirements at this point for accuracy in testing and labeling. Um, They're making attempts at it. 
But, you know, I was actually on a call earlier uh, today with a, a learning institution where I do some training for them on uh, dosing cannabis. And we were talking about the truth in labeling and the truth in testing. Um, I've seen examples of edibles that we're using, you know, where they have it printed right on the label, what actually was in it. And the reality is they're using a lab test that's from, you know, a year ago or they're, you know, they don't individually batch test. Um, it's getting better. And the other thing is the lab, the labs themselves are not all certified uh, for accuracy. There are some people who do it better than others. There's some companies that do it better than others, but to be strictly accurate to the milligram or even to the micro milligram, um, I would say you have to be very cautious. I would say in California, uh, I have found there to be a much more accuracy with some of the anti-Dolores products. Um, I'm impressed with some of the things that I'm seeing. Uh, there's a company called Stratos out of Colorado that's doing a pressed tablet. I have not tried it yet myself, but I've met a couple of times with the, uh, the company people and, you know, they're going to get me some products so I can have it independently tested so I can start suggesting it if I have out of state patients. It's, it's a tough one. It's a very tough one because when you're dealing with whole plant medicines, you have the, so many different inconsistencies, even through the batch. And then people uh, try to get around that by using single molecule or these extracted, you know, Frankenstein medicines, and then they just aren't as effective. Mary, you said in an interview that I watched that the notion of a gram a day or 60 grams in 90 days didn't make any sense. You said it was a ridiculous protocol to expect there be a one-size-fits-all. Can you elaborate on that statement? Absolutely. There are over 200 different kinds of cancer, and they work differently in the body, and the mechanisms of action are different, number one. So let's just forget the fact that it's a human being and everyone's different. You have a different cancer. If you have a, a, a if you have a, a breast cancer patient, for example, a HER2 positive breast cancer patient, or you have a glioblastoma patient, or you have a prostate cancer patient, these are all going to require different amounts of medicine in order to treat them effectively and to remove the cancer state from the body. And then you have the individuality of the people themselves because everybody has their own endocannabinoid system. And there is, you know, we can't compare this. You know, people want to say it's like a pharmaceutical where everybody takes the same dose. Well, all medicine is bespoke medicine. Even, I mean, anybody who's ever been on an antidepressant or on a, uh, a hormone medication or a, an allergy medication or whatever, how many different times does the doctor have to change either the drug or the dose before you get the one that works correctly for you? It's the same thing with cannabis. I've had patients go into full remission on 30 milligrams of THC and 30 or 40 milligrams of CBD. I've had patients that have required 500 milligrams of THC and the same of CBD to, to achieve the same results. So you have to be prepared to individually tailor it to the patient by following them, tracking them, looking at scans, looking at blood work, looking at cancer markers, seeing what's working and seeing what's not. Why put somebody through the discomfort of, I mean, a gram a day is an insane, that's a thousand milligrams of cannabinoids, a thousand. 
Okay. It's not a, it's not a weight. When you say a gram a day, the weight of it, meaning that if it weighs a gram, that's meaningless because you have no idea with what's in that medicine itself. Mm-hmm. Is it a gram? Is it, is it 80%? Is it 50%? Is it 30%? Is it 90%? And what else is in there? Is it, does it have a full plant extraction? Is it selective stripper that they use? I mean, all of that. So it's just not a very meaningful number. You know, Mara, when I was uh, combating my cancer, I was completely on my own. It was kind of before the days of the Facebook pages. And the reason that I waited a year to go back to the doctor was because I didn't get to that magical gram a day. So I was right. con- I was convinced that I still had cancer. That and, you had failed. That you had failed. Yeah. And, and yeah. Uh, um, I, I think if I'm really generous... I maybe got up to two-thirds of a gram a day, and that would be between suppositories and orally. So I was convinced that I still was carrying cancer around, so I waited a year, which, you know, in hindsight, I was probably clear of cancer for a lot sooner than a year. Uh But I didn't go back to the doctor because I just didn't want any more bad news. Right, but what? Yeah, think about it. What does that number mean? You know, I mean, think about a gram a day. I mean, here's what I say, and I could be wrong because I have never actually discussed it with Rick. But you have a pound of flowers, okay? Right. And you do a decent extraction, not a phenomenal, but a decent extraction on that. You're gonna you're gonna get about sixty grams of extract out of it. Correct. So did any more thought than that go into it? You know, it's like, where did the sixty grams come, come from? from? Yeah. 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 That's the only thing I can think of. Because he says, start with a pound of flowers, you know, okay. It's like... Uh, it's very arbi- very arbitrary. It's it's very arbitrary. It's not very scientific. And if, for example, if I'm dealing with a cancer where I know that there's ID1 gene involvement, I'm going to have a much lower level of THC and a much higher level of CBD. Much, much higher. Because I'm going to be working to block the translation of the ID1 gene, which is what causes cell growth and metastasization. So we know enough about the body that we know how to target. We don't have to just do this. This It's wasteful. And I've had more patients that I have either you know come to me as a last-ditch effort or come to me out of frustration where they said, I tried to use cannabis, but I couldn't handle the way it made me feel. Well, you know what? You don't have to be a basket case to use cannabis effectively. If you reach your therapeutic dose, you don't really have to be that uncomfortable at all because anything over that is just wasteful. And one thing I find uh, when I'm talking to people and they've got the 60 grams bit in their head is to try and get people to understand that what's a therapeutic dose for one person is not necessarily a therapeutic dose for another person. Absolutely, 100% agree with that statement. Absolutely. We've interviewed people who have had trouble taking uh the size of a half a grain of rice when they take cannabis oil. And we've had other people, Corey, who the woman that we talked to in Michigan took started three grams a day. day. Three grams a day, yeah. But we don't know what was in that. Exactly. That's three exactly. grams exactly. of what? She may have only taken 900 milligrams altogether if it was poorly extracted and only had 30% cannabinoids. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like, the, that's what I'm saying. The amount is a worthless number. Yeah. Worthless. And, you know, this is one of the things that makes me a little snaky just in the 
exposure I've had to um, dispensaries just in town. I've checked out a few of them, and I'll go in and and they'll carry cannabis oil, and I'll say, well, what's the percent of THC? What's the percent of CBD? And more often than not, they have absolutely no idea. That's just wrong. And they should have lab results associated with everything. Yes. You look at our website, every single medicine that's on there, including our topicals, has a has a current lab result that matches the batch number that's on the product exactly. If I buy 30, I'm, I'm going to use this because it's an easy number, okay? So that's no reason why I'm pulling 32 out of the air. But if I buy 32 pounds, for example, of ACDC from one of our, our growers that works for us, all right, I'm going to make four eight-pound batches out of that. Each one of those is going to be a separate batch. So you test the flower, and then you test each batch. And then each batch has the same name. Let's say it's ACDC. So it would be ACDC B1, ACDC B2, etc. And each one, they're going to be awfully close, but they're not exactly the same. And because we care about the information that we give to patients and that we're tracking to figure out how many milligrams precisely somebody is using so that they can repeat it, and have it be dependable, you have to know what's in your medicine. And the only way to do that is with accurate independent lab testing. What's your opinion on strains? Are they important, overblown, bogus? I'd be interested in get your thoughts on it. We try not to use the word strains anymore here. We talk about cultivars and chemotypes um, because the strain names themselves are so meaningless. I speak at a lot of medical conferences, which you probably know, and um, I so I, I, I look it up from time to time on seedfinder.eu, and last time I looked, there was, in November, there was 9,700 quote-unquote strains, and now there's over 10,000. Well, when I tested it a couple of years ago, there was 5,000. I tested it a couple of years before that, it was 2,000. And so every time somebody grows a plant or crosses something, they're renaming it. If you look at a scatter diagram of all of these, you know, quote unquote strains, there's really between five and seven that they all kind of fit together. So instead, what we talk about are cannabinoid and terpene profiles. Like, for example, if I'm going to be treating a cancer patient, I'm going to want there to be linalool and myrcene and, and if possible, some limonene in there, all right? So I'm going to want those in there along with the THC, along with the CBD also. Both of them, I want to make sure there's a lot of beta-carophylline because of the activation of, this, of the uh, CB2 receptors. So I know those things. And then it's like, okay, which cultivars have these properties? And then I look at it that way. Because if you get a blue dream in Toronto or a blue dream in Chicago or a blue dream in in Colorado or California, they're all going to be different. Mara, for the benefit of people listening, could you just briefly explain what terpenes are? A terpene is something that you smell. Um, A terpene is also something, and this is not getting into the scientific so that I don't want, you know, (laughs) any scientists out there to start, you know, because you have terpenes, terpenoids, flavonoids, all within the plant. But for all intents and purposes, they are medicinal properties that are within the plant that are also found in other sources, where the difference between that and a cannabinoid is cannabinoids are found in cannabis and only in cannabis. 
Um, arguably, some people say that there are other hops as a very close uh, cousin to cannabis. But a terpene, for example, uh, linalool, one that's very calming, it has a lot of really wonderful medicinal uh, benefits. It's also found in lavender. Uh, myrcene, which is found in mangoes and in hops. And then you have things like uh, limonene, which is found, which is very uplifting, but you can also find that in lemons. So there are things that you smell and taste to a certain extent that are in the cannabis that really makes the difference because THC and CBD themselves do not have a smell. Mara, I want to ask you, the, the stigma in the cannabis industry, it is still a recreationally focused industry and it still faces that pothead stigma how does that change well it changes with education and exposure and it's one of the reasons that i made a commitment to speak to as many groups as i can to you know spread the message that i do all the green flower things that i do interviews like this in because it's very important to me to help destigmatize this um i've trained uh quite a lot of doctors and nurses on uh you know how to utilize cannabinoid therapies for their patients we have in fact uh two doctors who work for us dr joe uh, jody goldstrich and dr harry mcelroy who actually see patients and help to manage their cannabinoid therapies along with their regular standards of care. So it's all of those things. It's also, um, I think it's just an element of time because as you know, more and more people are exposed to it because someone in their own family or their own inner circle gets sick. Lo and behold, they may not have been for it before, but all of a sudden they are. I think that one of the things that's been very encouraging to me over the last six plus years is seeing how much earlier in the diagnosis that we're getting patients than we did. When we first started, we were the Hail Mary. You know, we got them when they had tried everything and nothing had worked. Now, more and more, they're coming to us right at diagnosis. So um, it's very encouraging. And of course, as a result, we're having much better outcomes. It's a lot easier to turn a rowboat than a Titanic. So that's been very helpful. I think that we just have to educate and we just have to destigmatize it by having people that look uh, and sound like, you know, like me and you and, you know, Corey, that we're just like normal people. You know, we're not hippies. We're not people who were, you know, uh, were drug dealers back in the day that are becoming legitimized with our, you know, our, our cartridge that we're our smoking cartridge, things like that. So I think that that's really what it's the, the, the best thing we can do that in time. Myra, how has the attitude of the medical profession in California changed over the years towards cannabis? Well, I'll give you an example of a, of a oncologist that I work closely with down at UCLA. I've treated a lot of his patients. And one of his patients in particular, uh, he was getting ready to go back on chemo the following Monday. And the, the cancer had recurred. Uh, they had chosen at that point not to do cannabis up to that point, And they'd gone through standards of care. But this time, the family said, no, we're going to try cannabis. And uh, so it was like less than a week prior to him starting the chemotherapy. That morning, uh, you know, as before they do chemo, they always draw blood to make sure that you're healthy enough before they try to kill you. They did his blood work and all of his numbers were normal. All the markers were normal. So they said, the doctor said, you know what? 
I'm going to hold off on chemotherapy. I have to rethink everything I thought I knew about treating cancer, and I'll get back to you. He now sits on uh, sits on our board, this oncologist, and the young man that we were treating is still two and a half years in remission and has never had to go back on the chemo. That's so, an, Yeah, that's an interesting yeah. story because it tells us, tells me anyway, and I'm sure Corey would agree, that not only do lay people have to be educated toward the medical benefits of cannabis, but the medical profession does as well because we've been indoctrinated about this plant for 80 years that somehow it is a drug and it's going to send us to hell if we take mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's just up to us to educate and take every opportunity. In fact, I just was on with Patients at a Time where I, I teach CME courses for them and also, which is, you know, continuing medical education courses. And uh, we were talking about what I'll be offering this time in Berkeley when they do their conference in May. So, you know, it's always for the doctors and the nurses. And I always may, I'm sure to bring a scientist and doctor with me because I don't want to have them not listen to the message because it's coming from me and I'm not a Mm -hmm. physician. Mm -hmm. So I want to make sure that the message isn't tainted because of how it's delivered. And that's just ego. You know, I mean, it's ego. uh, It would be egotistical of me to think, oh, I can teach you everything. You're a doctor. Thank God we have them. But it's up to us to help them to understand the endocannabinoid system. And frankly, they're not used to hearing that from lay people. So that's up to us to to deliver it in such a way that it's non-threatening. Now, Mara, you, I know, have treated a lot of children. Am I correct with that? Mm-hmm. Yes. So yes. what happens if a, uh, p- a parent has a child with cancer? I understand you've got quite a uh, quite an in-depth intake procedure that happens first. Is that right? Yes. Yes, it is. We're collecting about 300 data points off patients. Um, and the reason we do that is we're able to then understand much more clearly where the commonalities are in the different treatments so that we know where our first you know, our first stop is on a therapeutic estimation of a dose. And so then we also get the feedback on it on scans and markers, et cetera. And so that we're able to see what's working, what's not, and make adjustments accordingly. So, you know, what a patient and a family does is they come to us, they do their pre-registration. If they're in California and they want to use our medicine, uh, which frankly I think is the best medicine out there, um, because we are, a, you know, an, a nonprofit R&D company. Uh, so it's not been about mass production and, you know, seeing how rich we can get overnight. But um, they fill that out and then they, they upload their doctor recommendation, which allows them to legally you know, use cannabis in California. And then uh, they're able to then get activated and go through the full intake and then meet with one of our physicians and do the complete intake via telemedicine, which is very convenient for people. If they're not in California, because we treat people all over the world, they can still go through our intake process, meet with one of our doctors, and if any medicines that they get, we can help them, as long as there's lab results associated, it, how to use the medicine that they actually are able to acquire. So we're agnostic about whose medicine they use, as long as there's lab tests. 
but they can't buy the medicine from you if they don't live in California, correct? Unfortunately, that's the law in the United States is, you know, you can, like, for example, you can use it legally in California, legally in Arizona, legally in Oregon, but you can't step across state lines with the product because that's federal. Federal jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you put it in the mail, that's a federal agency federal. as well. Exactly. Yeah. Mara, where- but there are a lot of pe- there are a lot of medical refugees though. There are a lot of people who come to California, um, and they and they either stay here for the duration of the treatments, or they find somebody who's willing to become a patient and act on their behalf. Mara, where do you see this industry being ten years from now? That is a very very good question. Um, I wish that I could say it's going to be descheduled or scheduled, you know, four or five and, or, and be, you know, uh, regulated as a uh, nutraceutical. And that's what I would love to see happen. I would love to see this regulated as uh, the same way that they regulate other nutraceuticals. Um, I believe that at certain levels that there should be uh, cannabis products that are over the counter. Um, and then other products that are behind the counter to be dispensed by a pharmacist. Because when you start getting into these higher doses, you know, you can, it can be dangerous. People might not die of the cannabis, but like, for example, we had a patient with very severe atrial fibrillation that he had not revealed in his intake. All right. He was extremely uncomfortable from the cannabis, so we had to completely change his profile. So I don't think that people should just be out self-medicating beyond um, very, very low levels or things that they can manufacture on their own. But if you start dealing with these highly, highly concentrated uh, medicines, you need to really know what you're doing because it can hurt somebody, especially if you're dispensing it to them. Um, but I would like to see regulation. I'm a huge proponent of regulation, and I think that it's going to stay that way. And I think if this, I think California in particular, because we've been an incubator for the cannabis industry for over 20 years now, we've been watching what's working in other states, what's not working in other states. And now that we're putting in the regulations, we're doing a pretty good job of rolling that out. I would love that to be the model for what the U.S. does, but, um, you know, who knows? I mean, now we have an administration where we have somebody who's, you know, chicken little, the sky is falling. So, you know, with the report that came out yesterday comparing cannabis to heroin by the AG's office is quite concerning. Yeah. Mara, in your previous work, you were a process engineer. You worked for Fortune 500 companies. Mm-hmm. What does your work today give you that your previous work did not? Besides the fact that the the satisfaction of helping to save lives every day, <laughs> you mean that that, <laughs> that little you thing, that? Um, <laughs> and, you know that little thing. Um, I think that you know that obviously being able to you know be of service to others. You know, in two thousand three, when I when I stopped working out in, in you know in a job because of my health issues. You know, it was very hard for me because I was always very self-sufficient and hardworking. And uh, my husband and I together made a commitment to be of service to others in our life, whatever that meant. And I feel like what I get to do every day is be of, to be of service of other to others, and that is a huge plus for me. The other thing is, I came into this at a time when nobody was asking the questions that I was asking. 
nobody was looking for the accuracy and consistency. So I have a, a little bit of a reputation as a thought leader and an industry leader. And I appreciate that because it is, you know, um, I have been working day and night for years to do this and to figure this out. And I, and I'm very grateful for my engineering experience because is how I see patterns and it's how I recognize repeat and make things repeatable, you know, cause that is the job of an engineer, especially a process engineer. So I, I, the skill set that I bring to this is, you know, perfectly suited to this, but I could not imagine ever being as satisfied, um, you know, for example, my last uh, my last job was with Safeway. I was the head of methodology and process engineering for their IT worldwide. You know, how could I compare changing the keypad at the register, the the software behind it, to you know treating children with brain tumors? One is satisfying, and one is rewarding. That's right. Mm. Yeah, Mara. You know, I was going to ask you actually. How do you determine what you're going to, going to give a child? Like, for example, if the child has a DIPG brain tumor, do you start out on the same protocol for each child who has DIPG? It depends what other concurrent treatments they're doing and what they've mm. tried. Mm. So it's always going to be treatment dependent because somebody who's going through, you know, active chemotherapy and radiation, I dose slightly differently than somebody who's not. Um, or, you know, somebody who's already tried these things or hasn't tried them at all. Uh, DIPG, interestingly, that you bring up is, um, I know that there's a case in Ireland where the child is doing fairly well. Um, but there is, you know, that is one of the ones that we just have not had any success with other than slightly extending, extending the lifetime yeah, it's my, and, and, and making it more, them more comfortable. Yeah, I wish to God. And I, you know, in fact, uh, I work very closely with Dr. Cristina Sanchez out of Complutense University in Spain. He's in Manuel Guzman's lab. Right. And uh, she was over here for two months last summer um, going through my data with me so that we could actually go out and we're going to actually publish some papers on some of the observational studies we've done. And I was, you know, we were kicking around, um, is there a way, because CBD, uh, there'll be CBD receptors that um, are on the, that are apparent on cancer sites. You know, they just, they develop these CB2 receptors. Is it possible that we can somehow figure out a way to target them for DIPG or to have them created? I don't know, because I'm not a scientist. I'm certainly not a molecular biologist. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that we need to do research and experimentation on. Um, and I'm very excited to be able to be involved with some of that. We have a lot of GBM, on the other hand, and we've had very, very exciting um, results with that. So GBM is uh, glioblastoma multiform, correct? Precisely, yeah. yes. Yeah. And with that, with astrocytoma and some of the you know other cancers that all are in the glio uh, space. Mm-hmm. What's your take on hormone-driven breast cancers? Because those are the two that just get me, the hormone-driven breast cancers and the DIPG those are the two. Yeah. Well, most hormone uh, receptive breast tumors, we treat with a, with a much lower dose of THC and higher CBD because of the presence of ID1. To start out with what the ratio, I would always start out a patient somewhere between one to two or one to three of THC to CBD. 
Um, and then I would start titrating them very low and then based upon their age, their comorbidities, pharmaceutical supplements that they're taking experience with cannabis, other factors would determine what our first target therapeutic dose would be. Mara, what's the youngest uh, child you've treated? Two weeks old. Two weeks, eh? Two weeks. Yeah. Yeah. A baby that was born with cancer. That's the youngest I've treated. Yeah. And the oldest I've treated is, I think, 96. So, wow. yeah, it's a fairly wide range. Wide range, yes. No kidding. Wide range, yeah. Can you share a story or two of cases that stand out for you? Yes. I just got a text message while we're talking, okay? Okay. I have a family that I treat in a uh, – I've been treating their little boy for uh, four – four years now, something like that, four and a half years, I guess. And he's in complete remission and has been for years. And this was with a pineoblastoma. The father's mother uh, became ill with cancer. She is in significant pain. She's having horrible conditions. And I just got this email or this text message. Just wanted to share with you that within 24 hours of starting I'm not going to say his name's mom on your oil. She perked up, started eating, which she hadn't ate for over a week, and started doing physical therapy. She went from a woman in significant pain with, with no drive to live to getting up, or excuse me, no drive to live, to getting up and moving around a little and eating again. Just wanted to say thanks again for all you do and for helping to get this life-saving medicine to those who need it. That's the kind of message, I mean, I mean, who wouldn't get out of bed and go to work for those kind of messages? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know you're making that, you know. I've had, obviously, the the one I told you about where they were going to have to start chemotherapy and then they didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a huge, you know, huge one for us. Um, we have a lot of fairly well-known patients. I mean, I don't usually, because of uh, privacy, say their names unless mm-hmm. they say it out there. But one of our patients, for example, Cheryl Broyles, uh, she's a 17-year GBM survivor, and uh, she's had multiple surgeries, multiple recurrences. But as soon as she start, stops the cannabis, she starts seizing and having all these issues. And um, she's an example of somebody who does not take what I, how much I want her to take, but she takes how much works for her in order to maintain her quality of life. And the one thing that I always say is extremely careful because we always ask a patient, what is your objective with cannabinoid therapy? And you have to remember, it's up to the patient to, to drive it. It's not up to me or you or anybody else. So if somebody comes to me and they've got you know a serious diagnosis of cancer and they're in horrible pain and suffering and, and I look at this and I'm like, my God, I know what to do for them because we've treated X number of patients with that same diagnosis. I might say to them, oh, I want to start you on X. But if their objective is just to sleep better or not have joint pain or nausea, that's their right. And then I have to honor that and only treat that which they want to use it for. Does that make sense? Absolutely, it it does. does. Mara, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Give uh, your website a plug. Okay, you can go to AZ, as in Aunt Zelda's, azcannaoil.com, or if that's too hard to spell, you can go to auntzeldas.org, and uh, you can find more information about our site there. If you're interested in talking to our doctors, you go to callispringwellness.com.
or I think there's a link on Aunt Zelda's as well. Yeah, Mara, it was uh, good to talk to you. Good to meet you, finally, because I watched a number of your videos. And Corey and I very much appreciate you coming on. Well, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to join anytime. Thanks, Mara. Much appreciated. Bye-bye. And there you have it, another edition of Cannabis Health Radio. Thanks for listening, everyone. You've been listening to the Cannabis Health Radio podcast. Visit our website, CannabisHealthRadio.com, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to PodConnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, it's Justin Benton, host of the Miracle Plant Podcast, where we discuss this miracle plant that goes by so many names and how it's helping people in so many extraordinary ways. So if you love this plant and you want to hear a story that tugs on those heartstrings and learn more about this plant, then head on over to the Miracle Plant Podcast. You'll be glad you did.